Hey everyone. So this week we're looking at the issue of perfectionism in black women and how it is driven by racist workplace cultures and the different and very unrealistic standards um, that black people tend to be held to in comparison to um, their white counterparts. We also explore the influence of the strong black woman stereotype and um, its ties to slavery and then also look at how this stereotype drives black women's tendency to strive for perfection. And as so often happens in these episodes, um, the conversation takes some interesting twists and turns, including some uh, interesting reflections on current performative DEI efforts in aid organizations. I have two guests for this episode, Lenise, who is a good friend, um, who agreed to share her current struggles with um, feeling invalidated and undervalued in her current job. Um, and we have Dr. Ajoa Osei, who is a licensed clinical psychologist joining as well. It's really important to me to include some content on mental health in these episodes um, to really highlight the, the very real psychological as well as physical impacts of racism for us as black women. So I hope you enjoy, and if you are a black woman working in the aid sector and you have a personal story you'd like to share, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, also check out and follow the SBWR LinkedIn page. Um, hope you enjoy, and uh, happy listening. So welcome, everyone, back to another episode of Still Black Women Rise. And I am joined again by Chi-Chi. Um, a good friend of mine, Lenise, um, is joining as well, and she's going to be sharing her personal story. And we have a repeat guest, um, Dr. Ajawa Osei, who actually is going to appear in, in an upcoming episode this season. Um, last year, she and I did an episode on Black women in trauma. So Dr. Ajawa Osei uh, Saidi is a licensed clinical psychologist uh, who received her doctorate from Long Island University post-campus with a concentration in serious mental illness. Dr. Osei practices from a trauma-informed, culturally sensitive approach. She was trained in both psychodynamic psychotherapy and cognitive behavioral therapy, which she uses in her virtual private practice and in her private practice office located in Brooklyn, New York. Um, as a Black therapist, Dr. Osei understands the challenges of navigating multiple systems of oppression. Her practice is founded on the perspective that identity is integral to therapeutic work and thus she views a person and their presenting problems within a cultural context. She is a published author and has facilitated multiple presentations and workshops on various psychological and social justice issues. And I'm super excited you're here because I really want to get into this topic. Um, and so I guess what I, I kind of also want to open the episode by saying that when when we started Still Black Women Rise, it is about, you know, sharing our stories. And that often comes with a lot of pain and a lot of us sharing, you know, our trauma around it. So it was also for me, it was important to like sort of weave into the episodes some conversations, I guess, around, um, you know, how to acquire like coping strategies and things like that for us to be able to navigate these sorts of racially toxic work environments. But I also felt like having mental health professionals come on to talk with us about some of these things to me was almost important in a way where I felt like it was sort of validating what we experienced, because I feel like sometimes 
it feels like it's not really real. And I think that having mental health professionals come in and sort of really sort of put a word to it. Like I, in a therapy session, um, cause I was going through some things in a workplace um, and I was, it was a black therapist. I was you know, conscious of that, but it was the first time I heard the concept racial battle fatigue and that there were actual physical symptoms associated. And I ticked almost every single one of those things. So I think it's just like having um, people like Dr. Oseon for me is part of like that validating um, and us also acknowledging. And it's like for the white people listening, I think it's also for them to understand that this is having some real fucking serious consequences on our mental and our physical health. And that's the type of shit that pisses me off because I feel like I've gone through experiences that have shaved decades off of my fucking life, right? Um, I'm already getting really pissed off about this. So- Facts, um, <laughs> I just have to say facts, okay? Because yes, the anger is absolutely valid. Like you said, this is affecting us mentally and physically. So I just had to jump in there yeah. real quick. Thank you. Um, so today we're talking about perfectionism in black women. And I was doing like a bit of like background research on it and then found all of these other associated concepts like, you know, the strong black woman stereotype and imposter syndrome and everything. And I wanted to do an episode on black women and perfectionism because I feel like it's, it's something that I think well, it feels like a kind of like a global sort of theme to me. You know, it's like I was thinking back, I think, um, uh, Ajwa, you and I were talking about Scandal, that episode with Olivia Pope talking to her dad, who was like, you know, you have to be 10 times better, you know, and all of those things. Um, but I think is also when I decided finally to post about the podcast, there were all of these narratives running in my mind. Oh no, we need to have this first and it has to be perfect and all of these things. And I feel like a lot of that was related to, and I experienced that like all the time, it's just even in workspaces, just like this has to be perfect and has to be this way because you feel like there's this scrutiny and there's going to be this judgment. And do they think I know what I'm talking about and all of those things. Um, and then, you know, I've had other conversations with other black women, including Lanise, um, where this is just something that that kept coming up again. So we're talking about that today. Um, and we're going to kick it off with just Lanise sharing, um, you know, your story or your experience with this so far. Um, so Lanise and I, you know, we had a conversation several weeks ago. Um, and, and it's not to say that I'm not in that place anymore. I think that I've sort of gotten to a place where um, I think it's like that recurring sort of thing that I go in, through in my mind is, you know, do I have the capacity skills? Do I not? Yes, you do. Okay, move forward. But it struck me, the conversation I had with you, Lanise, um, where you were talking about feeling very just not valued and like, you know, what the fuck am I doing here? Do I even have the skills and capacities and all of those things? And so and then I, you know, I thought, you know, you'd be really good to come on and share. So I just want to kind of have you share your story and then we can all sort of chime in and then, um, yeah, have like a more like specific discussion about <laughs> these other concepts. So I just give you the floor. Yeah, so I guess, let me, I have to think, <laughs> get my mind together. So I would say I first started having, I mean, I've had feelings of imposter syndrome at various moments. Like I would say if I was invited to like, 
a really prestigious event to speak on a panel I'd be like mm, you sure you want me you sure you're asking for me to come yeah. here but you know I think like having moments like that I think it's normal but I would say probably since maybe I say late November of last year I really started to have a lot more feelings mm-hmm. of imposter syndrome where I'm really second guessing myself and really like yeah, am I sure I can do this job? But it's like other part of me saying like, no, you can do this job. You have amazing skills, qualifications, experiences that have qualified me and has brought me this far. Um, I would say what I've noticed, what has probably had me more feeling like I'm an imposter or maybe I don't belong in this tape at this table is just a lot of the fucked up behaviors Mm -hmm. that white people and I'm also going to say white passing people so that can include Mm -hmm. other people of color exactly yeah pass for white or might look white but you might not realize they're from another country until they start to Mm -hmm. speak um just really rooted in microaggressions or saying shit trying to gaslight you Mm -hmm. trying to make you think like it's one way when it's not or not really being clear it is what what it is they want or holding you to an expectation that they have not communicated right right that they're one like I'm a person tell me it is tell me what it is that you want don't give me no run around mm-hmm. fluffy fluffy cow don't get me wrong I know how to deal with ambiguity but I'm telling when you're like ambiguous where it sounds like you don't even know what it is that you want that makes it even um yeah. more challenging yeah yeah I would say I feel like I don't know I I just feel like some people are just threatened by the power and the strength that black women bring Mm. in a space and I also feel like some people don't they want they say oh you can be honest and you can share things but then when you are honest and you share things then they try to use it against you yeah so for me, like how I've kind of been trying to navigate these spaces or kind of like what I'm experiencing now, I know I can't, uh, I know I can't trust everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's probably few people that I trust and I just reach out to those that are in my support system. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to make sure I'm very firm in my boundaries. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I mean, there are days where I'm really fucking pissed off. And there are days where I'm really upset that I really think the only thing I can do in that moment is cry. Cause I mean, sometimes I like crying after I've finished crying. Like I do feel good Mm -hmm. afterwards, but yeah. And just really trying to like ground myself and really get back into exercising and staying consistent with that that really helps me when I'm stressed to really um, channel that stress. Um, and then I'm thinking now about like, you know, going back and talking to a therapist. I mean, I believe in mm-hmm. therapy. I'm not against therapy. I first started doing therapy after I lost my grandmother. And then I also like was dealing with the crazy work environment. So it was like grief yeah. therapy and work all got crowded oh um, into, the, into the same thing. Yeah. You know, as you were talking, Lenise, it's crazy because I remember when I first met you, like you were a professor. And you still, are you still teaching? Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I still teach part-time <laughs> at Howard. Yeah. 
Yeah, like a whole professor, um, you know, you also have been in many different, like you've worked in many different capacities across many different types of organizations. And I'm curious to know if like along the way, like if you, like as you have been asked to like come in and like join on panels, partake in those different spaces, it would be nice if you could share just a little bit more about um, how you navigated dealing with like both micro and macro aggressions, like working in those spaces? Um, I think I try to be as very frank and honest as I can, but I feel like depending on who you're speaking with, you have to tailor your message. Cause like how I might say something to, you know, you all or my fellow black women is going to be very different. How I might say some to yeah. a person of color or to um, a white person. I would say when it comes to the mic, the macro and the micro, I've just really learned, but I, I've really learned not to take it personal because a lot of the times when people are coming from the spaces that they're coming from and where they're acting, it's a, it's a them issue right? and it's their insecurities and their fears and they're feeling, feeling intimidated by someone that's speaking loud. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, we're humans, we have feelings, we have emotions. So like, of course, you're going to hit your wall where you're like, okay, I can't deal with this shit. <laughs> yeah. So you know, you're going to have to process how you're feeling in that moment. Yeah. But I've just learned it's not, it's not a me, it's a, it's a them thing. Right. And people have bad behaviors that they don't think they want to address that needs to be addressed. But it's oftentimes they act like they're oblivious. Mm-hmm and don't want to address it, or they know, but they they have no intentions of changing because there might be in an environment that enables. Exactly, exactly. There's a lot of things that kind of came up for me as you were speaking. And then I feel like it takes us to like, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, um, Dr. Wusay. So I was, as you were speaking, um, Lenise, I was thinking of a performance evaluation that I received from an organization where I worked. And okay, so like in hindsight now, like I'm I'm in a very different mental place right now. Like you know, like I understand where a lot of those things and words and things that were used, I get, I understand the systemic racism that sort of informed and framed that entire performance evaluation, right? But I remember, and I can't re- like recall the exact words. I definitely feel like the overall feeling in that performance evaluation was angry black woman. That was the overall tone of it to me, right? And I remember sharing it with a friend of mine uh, who is a white woman. Uh, she's a very good friend of mine. And, um, and she and her husband were you know, kind of looking through it. And some of the comments and everything that were made by my, my manager um, and some of the feedback, my friend was like, you know, it's almost like um, they are not seeing you as human. It's like, they're giving you all of this feedback. It's almost like, you, you know, you can't have um, emotional reactions to things, right? Because your emotional reaction is like taken to some other extreme as like aggressive. The way that she was reading, she's like, it's like, you're not supposed to be a human being. You're not supposed to emote, right? And so I feel like there's this thing where when it's kind of going back to perfectionism, it's like the piece of holding us to this higher standard that 
frankly, I've encountered white colleagues. I'm like, what the fuck are you even doing here? Like, you don't even know your job. I'm sitting there like perplexed because you're occupying this extremely senior position. And I feel like I can do your job better than you. Just like, it's like, it's literally, you know, I was editing an episode last night. It was the episode with Angela Rayburn. And she was talking about how there almost seems to be this implicit sort of like confidence that white people have and that white women have it's just like they can just do anything whereas we're sitting there going oh you know i don't know like you're saying lenny am i the right person to come and speak at this thing like you know oh do i really have the capacity to do this that sort of thing so there's there's that part of it but then i think there's a part where that they take us to where they don't even see us as human do you know what i mean there's like a part where it's it's almost like and this kind of brings me to the first question is you know when i I was looking up black women and perfectionism. I didn't realize there's like papers written about how it's it's tied back to the strong black woman stereotype and how that came about during slavery and how, you know, black women were just, you know, for the purposes of of trying to enslave them, they justify their enslavement by treating us like, you know, we're, you know, just these super impervious you know, strong, like basically in, inhumanely strong, maybe resistant to pain or something, but how that is all sort of connected, right? Like a strong black woman stereotype, you know, this perfectionism, the superwoman thing where we're supposed to be, you know, impervious to pain. You're supposed to be able to, you know, to plow through everything. This all seems to be tying together for me. There is, you know, it's like, it's just the toxicity of it all. So, I guess I, I want to talk a little bit about, yeah, that connection between perfectionism and black women and the strong black woman stereotype. And then how does this tie back to this historical context of slavery, you know, and how black women were portrayed a certain way in order to justify their enslavement and basically everything else that is like the rapes and the forced conceptions, all of this, this really horrible shit. Yes, yes, we're getting into it. We're getting into it, starting <laughs> off with a big question, right? <laughs> and yeah. I just want to thank everyone for speaking so openly and candidly about your experiences, because it's, I feel like so few spaces where we can yeah. just call it what it is, right? Yeah. You're telling somebody and, and they start to question you, make you doubt. Well, are you sure that's what they meant? And it's exactly. like, I know that's what they meant, right? Yeah. Like, that's what they meant. So like, definitely let's get into it. Um, so first, I just want to highlight talking about like the strong black woman stereotype like this mm -hmm. has been a stereotype that's been passed down from generation to generation. And in some ways, um, it's been embraced, it can feel like a source of kind of power or strength. Mm -hmm. but at the same time, it has such like harmful consequences and really restrictive. Mm -hmm. um, just thinking about my own experience, I remember, um, you know, being on internship, and I was the only black intern, and I felt yeah. and I this happened at other places, but I just felt like I was often given more than everybody else or mm -hmm. assume that I could take more on yeah. and you know mm -hmm. there's often this kind of coded language right it's like oh you know you're so calm you know you're so and I'm like I'm anxious as fuck inside okay like <laughs> stop telling me I'm calm <laughs> exactly. and discounting my experience right like, yeah justify giving me more work right right it's, exactly it's yeah and so we yeah. often hear it in this very kind of coded like double speak on one hand it sounds mm -hmm. positive there's always this kind of hidden message. Yeah. And so when we're talking about the strong black woman stereotype, it's a sense of as black women, we're kind of pressured to act as like super women, right? We're expected to be strong, we're self-sacrificing, and that we're kind of free of emotions or encouraged to kind of exactly. suppress our emotions. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
And there's often like two parts to it. So on one hand, there's this idea of like strength and independence mm -hmm. and also being a caretaker of others okay. at the expense of ourselves, right? We're constantly encouraged to put other people's needs oh. above our own. Um, so just to kind of like give an example, right. like I remember growing up and I will say my mom was very, um, you know, with me and my brother, I think she really treated us equally, you yeah. know, responsible when it came to like household obligations. But I remember like my brother had been watching TV all day. I had been out. And I came home and she comes to me like, why are all the dishes in the sink? And I'm like, yeah. but I haven't been home. Like, you know, and she's like, no, no. Like, you know, if there's dishes in the sink, you need to do them. Right. And so right. Message, like that, it doesn't matter like what you're doing or what you had going on, even if you weren't in the house, that message came to me. It Got didn't it. necessarily yeah. come to mm -hmm. that moment, right? So the expectation that I'm supposed to put um, everyone's needs above their own. And so when talking about kind of, um, just like to add like the historical context, there was a sense of, right? Like this dehumanizing um, with slavery, right? We weren't seen as people. Um, we were treated as property. So we were um, really robbed of kind of internal, like our internal emotional life. Um, and so for particularly with black women, it was a way to kind of um, justify like enslavement, right? Because they had to separate us from white women. And so it's this belief that white women are vulnerable, they're helpless, they need white men to protect them. Shout oh out. Oh my God, is this the right? white women tears thing? This <laughs> in my mind, is this, you know, like, you know, the stories, these articles that were printed, is this like a white, this podcast, Lenise, you and I listened to it, the podcast recently with this black woman who was talking to these two white co-hosts. Oh, I, yes, yes. Where she was saying, yeah, like watching a black woman cry, she could be screaming, rolling on the ground. Like your reaction to that will be so completely different to like a white woman's <laughs> tears, you know? Oh my gosh. Okay. Yes, yes. yes right. <laughs> so they're fragile. They need to be cared for, right? That's the patriarchy. Um, and so for, you know, Black women to, you know, justify our enslavement, there was a sense that, you know, we didn't experience pain as much, right, that we're stronger, we're capable of this hard work, mm -hmm. our femininity was kind of denied, there was this expectation that we're not rapeable, right, so we're not seen as oh people. God. And so that, on one hand, kind of burst the stereotype, right, yeah. and then there's also this other piece in one way, it was kind of like a way to resist and preserve our dignity, right? If we were strong on the outside, suppressed our emotions, masked you know, the abuse that we we're experiencing and showed that we could continue and go on, that was almost a way to like survive. And so in talking about the strong black woman stereotype, it's kind of recognizing these different you know, opposing right. parts of it. There's ways right. we can praise, we might even value it and identify yeah. it. And then there's other ways, again, where it's dehumanizing, right? And it robs us of having vulnerability of our emotions. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking, I was having a conversation with someone, a brown woman, um, and we were talking about these these DEI things that companies and organizations are doing, oh, right? loving DEI, right? DEI this, DEI that. Yeah, right? and I have just decided I'm not, participating in that shit anymore because I just don't feel like we need to keep giving white people an audience to like have them feel validated by us being in the room watching them go through their work right like to me it's more and how many times have you like cried been angry expressed and like oh I really understand and then the next day yeah. they do the same thing yeah exactly what exactly. did you take away from this experience right? exactly it's just it's not it's not worth it to me and my energy it's a waste of time but she was sharing 
that she went into, you know, she joined the, I think partially because it just wasn't clear whether this was something that was mandatory, right? So, and I think that's another way that they kind of get you as being very sort of, like you were saying, Linise, very sort of ambiguous with things, right? So she she joined it. There's a whole ton of shit that was wrong with it. I mean, she was put in a breakout room with a manager. <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with you people? You know, I think it's like- Speak freely. Here's your manager. Right, Ex- but it's, and it's like, I think what I was telling her, I said, you know, it almost, I, f- I said, it feels again like, as though we are not seen as human. So you're putting us in positions that are going to be emotionally triggering for us. And you really don't give a shit. It's like, because for you, you want to sit there and you, it's almost like a lynching, right? Like the public lynchings that they used to have where they would gather and drink tea and everything and watch people be hanged. That to me is like the same thing that happens in these DEI things. It's like, you want to sit there and have all of the non-white people get really deep and vulnerable and share things. And you want, I literally, I was on a call once where the comment that was put in like the chat box in response to a man of color sharing his experience and like breaking down crying was, thank you for sharing your pain. Yes. And I feel like to me, it is that they literally do not see us as human beings. Like Mm -hmm. you, the fact that you don't even fathom that putting us in spaces like that where we have to keep revisiting fucking trauma in front of our traumatizers, like that doesn't cross your mind to me means that you don't even view us as the same on the same level as you in terms of just fucking humanity. You know, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just like, as you're speaking, like all of that is starting to really come together for me. Like the legacies of fucking slavery and how this translates into like our treatment today. Do white people understand what they fucking inherited like psychologically? that they are like perpetuating through their fucking practices, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, that violence, like that violence has been passed down and maybe now we see it in more subtle ways. We definitely see it mm-hmm. in overt ways, but just even that, thank you for sharing your pain. Like, so yeah. what is that communicating to that person, right? You're only gonna hear me if I'm talking about right. something painful. Exactly. This is the only part of me that you see. What other parts of myself are yeah. not welcome in this room? Yeah, like, why do we need to come to these spaces and fucking entertain people, white people in particular, um, with our stories, with our stories of pain, if it's not going to lead to any type of change? Like, I don't see how that can be. I don't see how sharing the stories, bringing in DEI practitioners into these spaces can translate to any form of advocacy if there are, if there's absolutely no gateway to actually changing infrastructure. And like the reason why I'm saying that is because um, I remember like the first two like big consulting gigs that I got, like the email, the initial email, like the outreach was literally like, Chi Chi, we wanna bring you in to help us come up with like a strategy. Like it wasn't even like, we want a workshop. It was like, we need a strategy. And then like my first question was like, okay, you need a strategy, but do you have the buy-in? Like, do you have the buy-in from, you know, like executive leadership? To which their response was no, but we kind of want to use this as a case study. How the fuck does that work? Case study for what? And Chichi, like, do they even know what the issue is? Like, do they even know? Right, exactly. They want you to come up with a strategy. It's always about the doing. 
but yes be with the discomfort sit yeah. and be with exactly the, the white supremacy not- culture the violence like why is it always this thing that we have to do yes and it always says it feels like someone breaking my leg telling me to talk about that pain every single day mm-hmm. telling me I should go to the doctor I should take pain medication but then oh deny God. me the access to get those resources right so Thank I'm just you. talking about the pain every single day but you're denying me the access to get those wow resources, that know? is such a horrible metaphor <laughs> I know <laughs> it's like it sounds terrible but that's what it reminds me of right? that's what it is and then because we learn to like... walk with a broken bone you know we learn to adapt oh my god and then it's like when it was all said and done after I like even just how I guess it's important also to be transparent and to say that like um you know like after back and forth negotiations where they're very disrespectful with the rate and the pricing Mm -hmm. and then like my fellow colleagues telling me Chichi just do it because like it's going to increase your pet credibility like back to your point Maimuna what you were saying in the beginning about this need to like have to kind of like earn yeah you're trying to prove yourself like you like okay do this because this is what's going to contribute to you being even more um perfect in many ways it's like no like I don't need to train a UN agency Mm -hmm. you know in order to to be any more qualified or any more credible why so why is this, why are we doing this? Yeah. Like, why are we, why are we, like, when I say we, I mean, like, why are DEI practitioners yeah. specifically in the field of international development? Like, why are we daring to engage in these spaces when we just continue? Like, it's just translates to, into even more violence. Um, yeah, it does. You know, one of the questions that I had as well that I've been thinking about is, you know, I think there's the perfectionism that we sort of put on in response to, you know, white people sort of underestimating us and just sort of, I mean, your point, Chi Chi, about this, you know, feeling like we have to acquire all of these qualifications all of the time. I was talking to a friend of mine who was saying, you know, I, I need to do an episode where I talk about like this, this, uh, I don't know if it's a practice or a tendency or whatever it is amongst black women to like get all of these degrees. At one point, because I have two masters, I was going to go do a PhD. I mean, it was just, you know, it's like, thankfully, the universe was like, no, you need to stop. But it's almost like this perpetual state of being like this professional student or something. You have to get a certification, get a license, get all of these things. Meanwhile, you're watching white people who maybe like just went to college and, you know, they're like a senior director. Or whatever. I, I just like the level of sort of incompetency that I've seen in some white leaders is so baffling to me because you just sit there wondering, how did you, well, we know how you got there. And then if we take this to the international development sector specifically and think about how this like then becomes even worse when you think about national team members of color, right? And so I was having a conversation with um, a colleague from a former organization. Um, I'm not gonna go too much into detail about the country, but from an African, a country in Africa. And we were talking about this, you know, we were talking about the fact that these organizations will bring in young white interns and they will in about a year or two, suddenly they have a director, country director or director of programming or director of grants or whatever. 
And then as a national team member, like they're telling you, oh, there's all of these steps you have to go through, right? You have to be a field officer first. Then you have to be an assistant. Oh, <laughs> like take this leadership program because we really need to like develop leadership skills. And you're assuming that white people coming in automatically have all of this. And I don't know if it's because we're going back to this thing of valuing a specific type of educator, whatever it is. But held to a different standard. We're always held to, you know, this different standard. And, you know, I always speak to yeah. my clients about just imagine a mediocre white man going for this. Oh, right? exactly. I've, yeah. I've, you know, they will. I'm just unable I mediocre, to even put myself there. Though, just... Yeah, I don't want like them to be like, you know, that. But just right. think about the things they go for. Think about, you yeah. know, what the things they'll ask for with barely any of the qualifications or experience it's right? amazing yeah you know? it's even amazing. for those of us who do have um like all these qualifications like i have two master's degrees i'm a certified project management professional i have like you know i still feel like i get slept like people don't yeah. care when i am applying for jobs like it's yeah. never enough um, it's like we're never going to be really perceived as experts that is my theory it doesn't matter it's like, and I, I remember having a conversation with someone recently where they were saying, um, they were talking about, um, oh, you know, you can come in and like, you know, use your, your position and, you know, your, you know, where you are to like influence or change this or whatever. And I was looking at the person going, <laughs> like, do you understand that me being a black woman trumps any like position that I have within any organization or company? It doesn't fucking matter. It does not matter. It's it's literally it just takes over everything. Um, but so I guess yeah. kind of also kind of like rewinding back. Um, my one of my questions is, you know, there's I guess there's a perfectionism that we kind of do in response to you know white people's higher ridiculous expectations of us that they don't even apply to themselves. But then I'm like I'm wondering how much of the perfectionism also comes from like our own communities. And I'm also super curious, you know, especially I think, I think we all have like very sort of different cultural backgrounds as well. So I'm also interested, I was trying mm -hmm. to think and work through my mind, whether or not the black perfectionism thing is like a global phenomenon, you know, like I was trying to think back on my experiences living and growing mm -hmm. up in different countries in West Africa and whether whether I, I mean, I feel like I saw parts of that in just, you know, going to school and sort of, you know, I, I saw a lot of that in sort of how you're supposed to present physically, you know, and I also saw a lot of that as if we're kind of speaking from like a neo-colonial sort of perspective, I saw a lot of it as you need to be presented a certain way when you're in front of white people. Um, do you know what I mean? I feel like it's in a lot of the countries where I grew up, there was like this deference always to these white Europeans who were there. You know, there was always, you know, just like, oh, they're just, you know, there's just something, you know, and there was always sort of, it always felt like, you know, you can prepare the house a certain way or, you know, dress a certain way when you go to speak them or, you know, I saw it in that sense. Um, it feels a little bit different, I feel like, from the perfectionism that I've experienced being in, like, the U.S. and going to school here and working here. It feels a little bit different. Anyway, I'm putting that out there for, yeah, theories, <laughs> responses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I definitely feel like there is, um, you know, I know the strong Black women stereotype has been talked a lot about when thinking about the impact of slavery, um, but yeah. I can't help but 
think about the impact of colonialism, right? And the things that you mentioned and presenting in front of white people and mm -hmm. somehow the sense that came in and made things better or quote unquote civilized right. or whatever. Right. Um, and so I think there is like this kind of like white gaze, you know, that we get used mm -hmm. to kind of seeing ourselves through our own internal experience, but we also can see our judging and seeing ourselves from this outside mm -hmm. voice, this white gaze that, that's, you know, shining upon us. Yeah. Um, and so I almost, oh, perfection. I was like, I think I forgot the question for a second. But I, so I think also with the strong black woman stereotype is also a role that's been valued, right? That's been praised as far as like caregiving, okay. um, seen as a part of like survival within communities. Um, and so it does kind of set like those standards. And then in thinking about perfectionism, um, there is, you know, perfectionism that can be more coming within the self we're being kind mm. of highly critical, um, setting kind of extremely high standards for ourselves. Yep. Um, there can also be perfectionism in how we might view other people, like holding other people to really unrealistic right. standards. And then I think the piece when we're right. talking about like white supremacy, right, is also this sense of kind of a more um, social perfectionism where we're, mm. others are setting like excessively high standards. We believe others are setting high standards in regards to ourselves. Okay. Um, or evaluating us more stringently, right? Okay. And so there's that, that's been three ways that perfectionism has been understood. But I think the issue for us as Black mm. women is that it's not just in our head, right? We are- Right, yeah, exactly. You know, that's, that's the issue there is that yeah. um, it's not only that we're imagining other people yeah. are evaluating us you know, unfairly. We have so many examples where this is yeah. happening, right? Yeah. Um, just when I think when I was in graduate school, um, in that year of my program, they let in four black women. They never did that again <laughs> in the same wow. year. Yeah, that was like the one year that I noticed that there was like four black women let into the program. Every other year, there's either been no black students or uh -huh. only one black student. And so this was a predominantly white program. Okay. Um, the reason I bring it up is just seeing how differently um, we were treated or judged in comparison to our peers, mm -hmm. right? So I could see some of my white peers turning in assignments late, um, not going to certain meetings, um, you know, and how is it that the majority of students of color were the ones that were placed on some kind of probation yeah. or, you know, what have you. But I was like, right. I remember there was one student, she was famously late for turning things, you know, always turning things, she was famous right. for that. Um, but she was never put on any kind of probation. And I remember um, when I started the program, I had like, um, it was like a peer mentorship. And mm -hmm. she said, listen, she's like, I'm going to tell you, she's like, you're a bald headed black woman. She's like, you have to, she didn't say bald headed black woman, but that's what, <laughs> that's how I took it. So let me, okay. those are my words. Right. Um, but I realized she said this in a way to help me because she said, you're very visible. And she's like, if you don't go to things, they're going to notice. <laughs> you have to really go to everything. And that's what I took is like, I have to be at everything. Yeah. Like I I cannot turn in things late. Yeah. I cannot make a mistake, right? And so part right. of that perfectionism is internal, but the other part is this external standard I know mm -hmm. I'm being held to, right? Mm -hmm. Like I just can't do these things. Yeah. Um, and so it leads to kind of this fear of imperfection, like somehow we'll be yeah. at fault. Um, yeah. We might equate like errors somehow to our own like mm -hmm. personal mistakes, right? And this is kind of the only way to kind of gain acceptance is to hold ourselves to these high standards. Yep. Know? Yeah. So. Something that you said, and then I want to, I want to hear from Lenise also, like sort of how this resonates for you. Cause I, yeah, just based off of our conversation, I know that um, you're going through something, but um, something that you said so there's, you know, the the perfectionism and how it translates into high expectations for ourselves, 
but also unrealistic expectations we may have for others. And so then it becomes self-perpetuating, right? So then I impose that on another Black woman. And then it's just, yeah, I guess I'm doing white people's work for them. And so in what sense am I sort of complicit in making, you know, other Black women feel less than? Um, yeah, actually, that, that feels really shitty. But <laughs> I, just, I just had a light bulb moment right there yeah and definitely something to explore more because as you were saying that it just makes me think about because in some ways it's like you know let's say someone joins an organization like another black woman it's like you want to protect them and say like hey this is what's going on watch out yeah. for this then also how are we restricting them right we're restricting it to be like this is the this is the path for achievement right listen you're going to have to work harder you're going to be held to a different standard um you know and also how am i harming the person by doing that but then thinking i'm protecting them as well you know it, it's a real it's a, a real conflict yeah mm -hmm. but we can project those standards on yeah. other people yeah exactly yeah lenise how how is this resonating for you everything i think that everyone's saying is like really resonating with me a lot i think as black women just because we're black um, we're always often hold to an unrealistic standard that others are not. But then we find ourselves, we give our white colleagues a lot more grace. Um, oftentimes, I mean, I'm a person like, I used to want to get everything right and have everything mm -hmm. perfect, but I gave up perfection like a long time ago. Um, so I'm just like, listen, I just want to do it right. If that means mm -hmm. I might have to slow down to make sure it's right. And that doesn't have to be perfect, but right no, no. the first time around, like that's what I kind of no. tend to do. But I'm, I mean, I, okay, you want perfectionism is the enemy. So yeah. it can really um, trip you up. Yeah, that's uh, the perfectionism thing is really difficult for me though. It, this, it feels like it's so ingrained. It's a difficult for me. Per, that's really a difficult one. I just because I remember growing up with a message from my dad consistently: "Don't do it half-assed. Always make your bed. Don't do it half-assed." Like it just, you know, they constantly like reinforce. And so, as a black man, I'm sure he was coming with his own, you know, the own his own messaging um around that it's like the perfectionism is to such an extreme i think in many of us as black women that even when we're sort of doing the minimum it's like it's close to perfect you know what i mean even when you're doing the bare fucking minimum it's like up here you know um but and so this kind of like going into the next question now is which is you know partially part of why we have a psychologist on this call right now is I think really important to think about you know I, the mental health consequences of this um and how this really you know is de detrimental um and then I was just honestly I'm thinking about just the the combined aspects and the combined stressors of just it's almost like you're constantly sort of trying to stay ahead and like, you know, the perfectionism and there's a paranoia going on. It's like, what if I'm not good enough? What if this is seen as this way? What if they, you know, say it's not good? What are the, all of those things. And then you're constantly, well, that's a microaggression in itself, but you're dealing with the other forms of microaggression, including people trying to push you out of an organization and, you know, sort of, you know, the whole, like you were saying, Lenise, when they say, oh, just, it doesn't have to be perfect. I never trust that. 
You know, I, I do not trust that because I'm always in the space of, I don't know if you're trying to sabotage me or whatever. If I give you something subpar, I don't think you're going to be happy with that. So I think it's just sort of, it just seems really unhealthy. It's just this constant yeah. shit that this is like, we're on this fucking hamster wheel all of the fucking time. Not only are you doing your job, doing it better than, you know, most of your, your, your cause. And even when you do, it's like, they come up with something else, you know, it's, it's like, it's, it's a, it's a losing battle because it's not even about the quality of your work. It doesn't fucking matter. So it's just, yeah, this is kind of depressing, but it, it just feels like we're kind of spinning our wheels here. And it's just, you're expending all of this fucking energy and literally getting nowhere. Yeah, and I think that, thank you, Maimuna. Like, it's also important. Yeah, I stopped doing DEI work and I feel like I focused a lot more just on overall, like, employee wellness because, you're, you know, you're talking about, like, the mental health effects, but what about how... <sighs> like just all of these it's like you're you focus on being so perfect and you focus on being so strong and a lot of that does come with a lot of internalizing and not being able to release and like I don't think that we talk enough about how those mental health um conditions can really manifest into all kinds of like negative like physiological yeah. responses and like your body literally just yep. breaking down I've met so many women like just by virtue of being in the BWI I mean there are people who have yeah. had to like file lawsuits there are people who have actually won cases because they're like I fell sick yeah and your work like you know you probably spend more time at work or doing work than you than you do like you know than you mm -hmm. do at home or you know Sometimes I just can't even, I'm only like, I'm probably like 10 years in and my body is just giving up. Like I give up. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is all of us, right? I don't think I started off being able to understand or interpret my experiences or frame them the way that I'm able to frame them right now. And for me, I mean, I keep saying this, I think the George Floyd's murder and that whole movement was just, to me, that was a wake up for me. It's just, I... I think that we all sort of intuitively, there was, there was always something there. I was like, eh, that doesn't seem quite right. When I think about like my 20 and my person in my, when I was in my 20s mm -hmm. and, and when I flash back to some experiences, I'm like, that was really fucked up. What that person said was really fucked up. They're just like, oh yeah, that situation was absolutely not my fault. It was this, 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 and that, <laughs> you know, but it's just like, I think that I was naive enough not to have all that shit really impact me. I think that the problem with awareness you know they say ignorance is bliss I think the problem with awareness is now like everything is this like into it's in so such sharp focus for me that I cannot not see it and I can't I'm in a place where I cannot not talk about it because I'm done just experiencing the bullshit and not saying anything I'm really done doing that and I think the precursor even to this whole Still Black Women Rise podcast project was an extremely horrible experience that I had with an organization. And I remember referring to this in one of the first episodes that we posted where I talked about how that literally broke. And I'm not saying this lightly. It broke me down and like I totally felt like I was boiled down mm -hmm. to like absolutely insignificant. You are nothing. Do you know what mm. I mean? Like, like it just was so bad and it took me, 
you know, a lot of time to rebuild myself. And that experience was as horrible as it was, you know, I just, uh, it was, I think it got me to this place where it's like, fuck that. Like, I'm not doing that again. Like, I'm not going to allow you to like make, you know, to make me feel like crap. And I thought, you know, unfortunately, I thought that, I think I said in that episode, that was, you know, <laughs> the most like toxic, you know, experience of my professional career. And then unfortunately I had another one. <laughs> so it's just, you know, mm -hmm. I had another one. And that one was the place where I, you know, really decided, um, you know, I'm thinking of, I don't know why this is coming to me, but um, Senghor and he, you know, he's uh, this, this African, he's Senegalese author, and he talks about, he had this whole movement, La Negritude Debout, it's this like, you know, um, blackness standing, right? It's like, so I, I was just like, I'm standing right now. It's this, you can't keep doing this shit and, you know, think that it's okay. It's just, it, it got me to that point where it's like, I think I had that first horrible experience that give me, gave me the awareness to start questioning. So, you know, you know, this is really, really shitty. And it, it really felt horrible. And I kind of pulled myself out of that. And then I have, I had another one that took it to a whole other level. Like, I feel like we've been through, or I've been through the boot camps of racism, <laughs> we've gotten like from bad to worse. And, you know, the worst one was just, I was, you know, I think that it, I don't know how to put it. I think it's just something that just clicked. And yeah. so there, there isn't the fear. It's just the fed upness, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, you just, you, I, hopefully every black woman gets that point because there are so many of us, I think that are just there and just stay there. And, you know, it's just for whatever reason, yes, we need a job, but there's also, you know, there's shit that we can do while we're still there and you're looking for something else. You know, I'm just kind of done giving them passes and, and sort of, you know, going back to what we were talking about before, them seeing us as less than and not human. And you can just do all of these things. It's almost like in our silence. And I understand that it, it is because we're trying to protect ourselves. I get all of the reasons and I'm not discounting black women who I'm not going to say that it's a choice because I don't really feel like it's a choice. Right. But black women who are in that space where, the, you know, nothing, they're not they're not going to speak out or resist. I get it. Um, but I also feel that in doing that, it almost feels like we're helping along this, this racist crap. And I feel like in doing that, and I, I don't want to make it so like, okay, all black women go, if it's not right for you, it's not right for you. But my feeling was that in hindsight, I think that I felt that if I had to do something for myself and stand up for myself, but now it feels like, that was necessary because I'm fucking sick and tired of hearing of more black women going through this fucking shit. I'm just over it. I had another conversation with a black woman a couple of weeks ago where we're talking and I mean, it's just like the type of shit that she's sharing with me was like people talking about the texture of her fucking hair. I'm like, are you kidding me? And you know, she shows up with her hair press and they're telling her it looks more sophisticated. I mean, it's, it sounds like a little thing, but it's like, how dare you? You know, do we go along talking about, you know, oh, did you use filler in your lips? I mean, did you have a facelift? Did you get, you know, breast implant? Do we talk about that? No, we don't. So what gives you the right to comment on a black woman's hair or anybody's hair? Like it was just how she was talking about how 
it was almost like she was objectified for her blackness as being one of the constant surveillance yes surveillance of our bodies like i'm I'm over that i'm i'm over that important to recognize it's not like an isolated incident for many of us right these are repeated incidents that happen over and over that have a cumulative effect on our mental and physical well-being i imagine all of us can think of an example where someone asks you something ridiculous and Mm -hmm. stupid about your appearance or your hair or what have you and it has a cumulative effect you know um and it's you know really detrimental i mean it can link you know has been shown to connect to symptoms of depression and anxiety Mm -hmm. you know feeling isolated from other people feeling guilt right if we can't meet these standards reflection on our own sense of uh self-worth right Mm -hmm. and we might begin to like internalize this Mm -hmm. and identify with it um you know too heavily as a way to cope because like the strong black woman and stereotype and perfectionism like i spoke before it can be an adaptive right it might help us achieve certain things um and so there's value in that um but then it also can you know contribute to us really kind of you know, suppressing, um, okay. you know, that vulnerability. Like I remember so often I would like, am I confusing being tired with being lazy? I would so often say oh. I'm being lazy. I'm so lazy when I right. couldn't push through or do something, but I'm like, my body is telling me that I'm tired. Right. I didn't realize I was like doing too much. And so I met with a group of friends who weren't black and we we're talking about our days and I'm like, okay, well, I went grocery shopping. I cooked, I cleaned, I worked on my dissertation. And they're like, you've done more when I did laundry. They're like, you've done more in a day than I've done in a week. And I'm like, the whole day I was telling myself I'm so lazy. And it's like, why? Like, why am I lazy? Because my body is telling me you're doing both, you know? Oh my gosh. And often those bodily cues, I feel like, are insights to what's really going on. We might notice the headache first, right? We might notice the speed. We might notice being thirsty before we notice kind of Mm -hmm. the internal experience and what's going on. Mm I mean, I agree. Like, I feel like what you just said really resonated with me. Like, I say it often. I'm like, oh, I'm tired. Like, Mm -hmm. I say it way too much. I'm always literally like, I'm tired. Or somebody will say something. Somebody will say something really fucked up. And I'll just be like, I I can't even process it. I'll just be like, I'm tired. Like, I feel like I use that word so often. Right. Um, And then it turns into like this never ending cycle of like, I'm not doing enough. Um, And then I think that, like, it's important for us to also maybe talk about how when you do make that, you know, that choice, when you're Mm -hmm. like, okay, like, I'm going, you make that conscious choice to actually focus on taking that much needed rest, like, don't allow other people to make you feel less right. Because yeah. you're doing things for yourself, like, right. you know, because I, I feel like since I've started doing, people are so used to me doing the absolute most and like just literally being in every space, volunteering, giving my time. And now I'm like setting so many crazy boundaries. And I find that like a lot of my friends and colleagues like do, I mean, I understand it's like, it's change is not easy, but sometimes it's like, I literally have to name it and be like, no, like you're projecting or like, no, Mm -hmm. like, please do not, please respect what I'm saying. Like, please just, I know where I'm coming from and like I, I like I think it's also important to share that as well because it's yeah. like you know like if you find yourself in a space where people are trying to make you feel um some kind of way because you are taking you know you're making your mental health a priority your physical health a priority yeah and not defining ourselves to how we're useful to other people right because when we yeah. start those boundaries like you get exactly. that pushback 
you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how are we making ourselves useful to others? Yeah. So all of that being said, what are, I guess, yeah, for people listening and because, um, yeah, also all of us can't afford therapy. Um, unfortunately, that really sucks, that's a whole know? nother podcast. The how un- it is. inaccessible there is that word inaccessible therapy is, you know, uh, yeah, the communities of color. Mm-hmm. Yes. And we really need it. Um, so what, I guess my final question was what sorts of strategies can we adopt to avoid sort of giving into the feelings of unworthiness, how to counter like that internal narrative of like, I'm not good enough, or I don't deserve to be here, or do I really have what it takes and how it's, it's really easy to internalize that shit. So yeah, what are some, yeah, what are some things that we can do to sort of, to counter that? that tendency to just sort of give in to the nonsense, I guess. Yes, yes, yes. And I think, you know, so many of you have like really, you know, in the space of already shared things that you're doing, right? Um, you know, I was thinking what mm-hmm. we spoke about, you know, letting that perfectionism go, right? Because white supremacy culture, um, you know, emphasizes perfectionism. Somehow mistakes are considered personal or bad thing, but why aren't mistakes mm-hmm. also seen as a moment of growth, right? right. And realizing yeah. the standards are always going to change and we can never yeah. meet those standards because they're not meant for us to meet, right? It's always for us to be uh, less than. Right. You know, and I decided this morning um, when I was coming to the space today, I was like, I'm going to start saying to myself, um, I'm going to start like almost every other sentence as a Black, mm-hmm. queer, free woman. resisting the white gaze I insert blank like as just like an affirmation to myself to remind myself of the work I'm trying to do every day you know embracing these different identities of you know of myself and also pushing back from these external standards that just don't align with me right and so um you know when I think about coping one uh thing I say is like it's unfair that we have to cope right? We shouldn't have to cope with systems of oppression. And mm-hmm. so just acknowledging that first, the unfairness of it, yeah. we shouldn't have to be forced to take care of ourselves in this way. And the same time, it's still important, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I like to think about, uh, you know, self-care doesn't necessarily have to be bubbles, baths, and champagne, right? Yeah. <laughs> self-care can look yeah. like many different things. Okay. It's a multidimensional concept. And I think starting with the body is helpful. Um, beginning to think about like, are you sleeping enough? Are you eating? Are you caring for your body? What might your body be telling you? Mm -hmm. Right now, my shoulder and my hamstrings have been killing me for days. And I know I've overworked my body in some way. And so Mm -hmm. that's a clue, like you need to rest, you need to relax, you need to treat your body with love and care. So that's one of the first things um, that came to my mind. Um, I guess the question that I had was just thinking about for yourselves, like what helps your body kind of feel more in sync and in tune? Because I think the impact of this historical trauma, mm-hmm. white supremacy has led to us really being out of sync and out of tune yeah. with our, our natural kind of like bodily rhythms. So just yeah. kind of when you think about like your body, what helps you feel kind of more in tune, you know, and more I was connected to your body. Joke here, but... Oh no, go ahead, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say medication. <laughs> medication is important you know it's not a bad thing it's an aid it's a tool and it's an aid right it's a tool and an aid for our body you know yeah Um, so I think that that is important um just even things like (laughs) dancing like yoga like it it can look like so many different things you know and I think it's important to know for yourself like what helps you 
mm-hmm. feel more connected to your body? What helps mm-hmm. you restore, you know, at the end of the day, mm-hmm. you know? I, I think the reason why, like, I just want to kind of echo what you said, Ajoa, about how, like, self-care isn't just necessary. We really do need to decolonize, yeah. <laughs> like, what yeah. we think mental health is, what yeah. we think self-care is. Um, and yeah. I have, like, this one slide on my pitch deck whenever I'm, like, presenting it to potential investors or just people who are interested. And I'm, I, ha- I have, like, an actual, like, slide that's, like, this is what we think self-care is. Like, we think self-care or, or even mental health in particular. Like, we always, right. when people hear the word mental health, like, they automatically think about disease but they never think Mm. about like mental wellness Mm -hmm. and um like here on the con I just I I feel the need to talk about like especially me just being based in Uganda um and the fact that when I think about international development and the spaces that we work in a large percentage of, um, of you know people working in international development are not necessarily American or um, you know, I identify with like Western practices and um, some people are actually hesitant to go and have like one-on-one conversations yeah. with therapists. Um, some people are like, they don't, they wouldn't mind doing it, but there's just not enough trust. Like, yeah, I, yeah, I think, well, say so I would say two things for coping for me. So I, I do work out every day. Um, And then I think another coping thing, it's not related to body, but I think something I've learned um, in the past two years that I'm really trying to be very deliberate about is setting boundaries with these people, meaning white people, and being very clear now in communicating what I'm willing to tolerate and what I will not tolerate. It's like that saying of you teach people how to treat you. I'm really taking that literally. So I'm just trying to be very deliberate about saying, I am not going to do this thing because this thing is actually going to hurt me, you know? Um, so to the extent that I can, that's, that's what I've been trying to do is just is setting my boundaries with quote unquote, these people. <laughs> it's like, no means no. I can't tell you the number of times I've said to a white person in an organization, I don't feel safe doing that. And you just still persist in trying to get me to do it. And it's just, you know, it's like the, the patronizing, the platitudes of, you know, oh, but you know, you have such valuable inputs and it's no, 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 <laughs> period. Um, you know, there's something, uh, you know, in particular too, I think to think about is, you know, understanding our own kind of like there's like the public like history of strong black woman stereotype but what is it the own personal history in your life like what Mm. are messages that you've learned throughout time um and thinking about how does it manifest like in your life what does it look like for you and so this kind of like thinking about um the self-definition versus the external definition what's the definition that's constantly been told to you the definition that's been reinforced And then what's your own personal self-definition, right? There's a part of mm-hmm. us that might identify with a strong Black woman stereotype in a way that's actually healthy for us. Right. Maybe it feels motivating for us that we connect with. And yeah. so thinking about what aspects have been told to you over time and what serves you and doesn't serve you, right? Mm-hmm. There might be aspects of this role that you do want to mm-hmm. take on. Like, for example, mm-hmm. 
um, I like being seen as consistent and dependable. Like that's something yes. that I really value. You know, I want people yeah. to feel like they can reach out to me. Um, that's stuff that someone, you know, that they can depend on. Yeah. But where's like the limit of that for me? Like, when does it become too much? You know, when right. do I need to set, you know, limits around that? So I think thinking about our own personal and yeah. public history with a strong black woman stereotype can be helpful yeah. because I think if we just portray it as like all bad, all bad, um, versus thinking about what aspects, you know, then we might kind of alienate people too, right? Like if I'm working with a client mm -hmm. and I'm just talking about how harmful this is, mm -hmm. you need to change, you know, I'm, I remember seeing a therapist, like you need to set boundaries with your parents. And I'm like, girl, I'm Ghanaian, all right? Like, <laughs> what, is, what is that? Yeah, My parents are exactly, yeah. crazy, right? Yeah. Rather than, you know, thinking about, okay, what aspects of that role do you appreciate? What aspects mm. identify, you know, that you identify with? And then thinking about like, where do you want to limit it? You know, I think it's important to right. recognize that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I think, um, yeah, I think I'm going to say, yeah, I have to think about that. Well, I mean, one of some of the things that were running through my mind was, I think, where I really have to be careful is around, uh, like, that point you were making before about how part of that is us suppressing our emotions, you know? And so I think... For me personally, it's kind of being careful about that um, because I think that, I think that just sort of being raised sort of that way to be strong always. Um, and just, I mean, there's a whole bunch of other things just like this might turn into a therapy session. But anyways, I think that um, it does kind of, I, I think that kind of does make you a little, at least for me, emotionally detached. And so sort of not having the quote unquote normal emotional reactions to certain things, because I don't know if I've exercised like my emotional muscles very much. You know, I think I tend to be very cerebral and logical about things. And I think a lot of that is part of like just kind of being strong, like just, just move forward. Just, you know, my dad always used to say, stay the course. Like that was his thing. Stay the course, stay the course, you know? And so it's just like that invulnerability of like moving forward always, you know, regardless of, well, like Katanji Brown, like uh, Jackson, the, the confirmation that just happened and that whole spectacle, you know, of like her sitting there. Right. And just going forward with this whole fucking confirmation process. I'm just trying to imagine like the degree of fucking self-care and internal dialogue she had to go through to like navigate that fucking process. So it's just like, you know, she sat there and she took it. And that was the external expectation of her. I think it was also the expectation that many of us as Black women had for her. Do you know what I mean? That she set for her, you know, it's just, yeah, I think it's that thing of this, yeah, like I'm just trying to imagine like the fortitude of having to sit there and like control your emotions that much, I feel like does kind of get you to a point where you suppress and control so much that you detach from that a little bit. So for me, it would be, it would be that piece, I think. Yeah, and recognizing that there's no, you know, I've been trying to move away from this idea of like positive and negative emotions. Yeah. Right? There's no emotions that are bad. There's yes. maybe emotions that feel unpleasant. Right. Um, and, you know, I'm trying to reconnect with them. Like I have such, a, I guess I've been saying re reconnect is a word today. Um, I have <laughs> such trouble with anger. I am not good at expressing anger. Like huh. I feel like anger has been something that I've been like discouraged. Like I feel like I'm always trying to come off like, you know, um, you know, calm yeah. and, you know, what have you. And that's also okay. something that's been rewarded and praised, like for yes. me, definitely in workspaces. 
Um, but like the anger, like it just, you know, boils me. I'm like, I need to acknowledge this emotion. It's a valuable emotion, emotion that could propel me forward. It's an emotion that can provide, you know, valuable information, but this fear of like confirming the angry black woman, you know, has me speaking, you know, differently. Like I, I, like I, I, if people like, I'm like, I'm like, I was just thinking the other day, I was like, there are some people in my life who probably only know my job interview voice. They don't know this other voice now, right? This voice that's speaking with a different passion, emotions and using a hand. They right. know my job interview voice. Right. Yes. Yes. So, the job so, interview voice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it, actually. The job interview voice. Yeah. So it's like, I want to be able to be angry and express that and be bold with my anger and not feel like I have to shut it down or push yeah. it away. Yeah. Yeah. I do feel like I it's going to say the, the interview voice would be like code switching. Yes. Right. Because yeah, how I absolutely. talk at work and how I might be with my friends or mm-hmm. even when I'm with my family. So I'm Jamaican American. So when I'm around my family, I'll probably have more of a Jamaican accent or when I get really, really mad, it comes out. So yeah. <clears throat> I don't like to get mad, though, because it takes me a lot to come down from it. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was thinking about a conversation I had with a white man once and just kind of coming out of that and realizing how I had to really and we were talking about race and I had to I it, his I hated I hate that I did this, right? But I I don't think I had any other option, but it just it you could see I wasn't being loud either. I mean, I I was definitely passionate about what I was talking about, but we were talking about race. And I could see his physical discomfort was very apparent. And I found myself gradually like dialing it down more and more and more and muting the anger and the frustration because I was concerned about his discomfort. You know, (laughs) I kind of left that, you know, with this, you know, this thought in my head of, um, you know, like white people can't be doing this work and they cannot be racial equity advocates or allies or co-conspirators, whatever we want to call it, if they are not willing to hold our pain, you know, and our anger and all of that. If you can't do that, then you need to just sit down, you know, because I think that we have do so much of that all of the time. And I was having a conversation with someone yesterday, and I was saying that um, the podcast to me, I'm just someone... I swear a lot and I enjoy swearing and I will never stop swearing because swearing to me is like a way to get out the frustration and the anger. It's just, you can be very creative with swearing words, but I was saying that sometimes when I listen to recordings, part of me wants to edit out like, Oh, the fuck this and the shit. And and I thought, you know what? Fuck that. Like, no, because in our daily work, right. I feel like I'm always editing myself I'm always muting myself I'm always you know like speaking in the interview voice and I'm like the this is a space where I can come and I can speak however I want to speak and say whatever I want to say and so can every other black woman who comes on so I'm like no this is just what I'm going to do I love that like I love just like you know can be so candid and you know and and when you invited me back I was like absolutely because it's like I know I can just show up as me yeah show up as me my credibility won't be questioned we're gonna (laughs) engage you know (laughs) we're gonna engage in dialogue that's gonna push us move us forward support us and you can bring all these different versions of yourself all these different versions of yourself we can curse we can you know 
however and yeah. it's like like you said we do so much editing censorship yep other person's uncomfortable let me you know mute myself minimize myself and it's like why do we have to be the ones that have to sit with the discomfort exactly yeah it's kind of like you know some they want you to bring your full authentic self oh to work, god yeah i wish they, they don't know how to handle that. it when yeah. you do bring it so they need to stop saying that they need to stop saying that there's just so many places we could go with that it just i was just having that conversation with a white person recently where they were talking about this dei session again oh you know it was so wonderful and you know they put us in breakout rooms and we got to really process power and all of these things and you know i think it was just really great for everybody and I just remember saying, and she was talking about how the, the person who was facilitating that process was emphasizing, you know, oh, we, they, we need to create a culture where people can bring their authentic selves and all of this stuff. And I just remember saying to her, okay, number one, I said, I think it would be very interesting if, if you maybe asked non-white people in this organization how they felt about that session, because you may be surprised. And then I said, secondly, you know, I said, I will never bring my authentic self to a white dominated workplace. I'm like, you just don't do that. You I know? would be fired so quick. Yeah. I, would be fired I so mean, quick. It's, it's ridiculous to me that, you know, we're celebrating just now. What is it like a law that was passed that allows you to like show up with your hair, however you want it to show up? That's like fucking stupid. Like, I, I couldn't even believe there was actually like something where it was like illegal for you to even do that, that we have to pass a law to make it okay for you to show up as your authentic physical self. I mean, why don't we just start saying that people can only show up as like a certain tone of skin? I mean, it's just so stupid. I told her, I said, yeah, I was like, eh, you know, no, um, I'm not bringing my, my authentic self to like any white dominated workplace. Because yeah, I would, I would be shooting myself in the foot and the head and the stomach and the chest and all of those things that basically is career suicide. There's no way. And then when you do, you know, like the woman I was talking to was like, you know, has textured hair and was saying, or making all of these comments, how do you get your hair like that? Oh, your hair looks so sophisticated. I mean, really, I'm really, no, no, it looks, it looks more sophisticated. So what is the implication here? My natural hair looks wild and unkempt like I just don't it's just yeah no we're not bringing our our authentic self and then there's just all of these um you know like these invisible rules right that you don't aren't really aware of until you've actually supposedly crossed one right so you're saying you know bring your authentic selves yes talk about all of these issues like generate discussions and all of these things and you start to do that and then suddenly you know there's an email somewhere. Um, a friend of mine was just sharing yesterday that she, I mean, God bless her. She is a woman of color and she organized a, an activity at her organization around white supremacy. <laughs> I just like, I can't even believe that she had like the mental fortitude to do that. You know, I mean, that just to me is like, oh my God, I get anxiety just thinking about her in that position. But she was sharing how she um, was organizing this with the DEI person and the DEI person, I guess, is new or something. And um, she sent out an all staff email to people announcing, OK, we're going to be talking about white supremacy, whatever. 
and she's like she got this phone call from like leadership um like we need to jump on a call right now we need to talk right now um why did you send that to all staff there are some white people who are very offended by your use of the term white supremacy <laughs> it's just, it's just, you know so i think my point in this is saying to me part of bringing our authentic selves is also us being able to contribute authentically to these sorts of conversations. So to me, be very clear about what your definition is of bring your authentic self, right? Because if your definition of bring your authentic self is, you know, okay, it's only authentic insofar as we're comfortable with it, then no, you know, but it's like, it is also our ability to have these conversations without being regulated by these nonsense, invisible rules that just pop up oh, you weren't supposed to send an all staff email. We have protocol around that. Really? Why? I mean, you know, oh, well, you know, then this whole, like, we are like a collaborative sort of place, right? Which to me is like really code in a lot of organizations, especially if we're going to be talking about racial equity and as a black woman feels like monitoring. Oh, we have collaborative things. So, oh, why don't you speak to so-and-so? What it always feels like, okay, yes, we're giving you the space to talk about these things, but we want to make sure that we sort of regulate and moderate how you're doing this. And those two things can't exist at the same time if we're trying to be authentic. It just can't, you know? It's very much so giving me performative DI bullshit, like. Yeah. Oh, this is this is the trend. So I'm gonna follow the trend and oh, we're gonna have these conversations. Okay, what's the follow? What's the plan? Okay, so we're talking about this. We're talking about people bringing their full authentic self for work or how we're gonna address white privilege or how we're gonna address microaggressions or whatever mm -hmm. the topic might be. So what's the plan? Or oh, it's so great that we can have these conversations, yeah. but okay, well, how are you gonna address it? Yeah. Because, then, right, it's like you can't keep talking. It's like you're right. beating a dead horse. Exactly. Yeah. And then ignore the fact that we've been having these conversations. This conversation exactly. we're having amongst us is not new. We have exactly. these conversations all the time. You know, exactly. We That's... have to have spaces where we feel seen and right. supported and can speak yes. to them. These conversations are new and started um, summer of 2020. Exactly. How can you expect someone yes. who discovered that racism still exists in summer of 2020 <laughs> to have a conversation with someone who experiences racism in every single yeah. different area of their life yeah. multiple times throughout the day. You know? We're in a completely different galaxy. It was the same thing I was telling Chi-Chi is they want to organize these things talking about power and privilege and identity. And I'm sitting there going, I don't know why non-white people need to be there because I think about and reflect on my power and privilege 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. It, that is like, since we were children, that is like there, it's present all the time. We physically move through spaces, like you said, Adora, where you're black. Nobody can ignore or not see the fact that I'm black. I mean, it just, yeah. I would say even speaking about the power and the provision identity, I'm like, well, do you know how that's triggering and re-traumatizing yeah. in some spaces exactly. for black people or brown people that might have ex experienced it? Like, are you really thinking about that? Or are you gonna have like some kind of psychologist or therapist available yeah. that if in that discussion, someone is triggered yeah and they can reach out and talk to someone to cope yeah. within that moment or yeah. are you thinking about how these conversations 
people can probably not really cope and go back to focusing on work exactly. after sitting in a two-hour yes. session yeah talking about this or are you thinking about the dynamics when you're putting people in certain groups because I don't care anybody that say a space is safe they're lying to you in your face no because they're you they're going to try to listen to you yeah. and try to see what you're going to say and then find some way to use it against yeah if you gotta tell me it's a safe space the space right safe. that's a good point <laughs> right yeah, how can someone say yeah how are you going to determine what a safe space is for right me? you don't know right and like yep. you said but if you need yeah. to say like we didn't start yeah. this podcast and say hey everyone we want to let you know this is a safe <laughs> right. please bring your authentic we didn't we didn't have to right. say that because we knew that we were coming into a space where we yeah. would be seen and That's even if we don't point. all agree yeah. we would take in i'm taking in what you're saying yeah before rejecting or trying to question it. right i'm going to take you in. i'm going to take in your experience you didn't right. have to tell me that when i talked to you we knew there yeah. was that kind of common yeah. understanding you know there did not have to be a warning about there shouldn't be a warning, <laughs> like a warning yeah. A safe space. yeah and I think when I even go back to like the bigger picture of thinking about imposter syndrome I actually spoke about this um recently um mm-hmm. through a fellowship program that I did a few years ago they organized a, a panel talking about imposter syndrome and um, gender um, equality and global yeah. health leadership. And it's kind of like I go, like I said, I was like, if someone is dealing with imposter syndrome, especially if they're talking to it, whether it's their manager or someone within their, mm-hmm. their organization, it's not on the person to change it. It's on that organization yeah. to really address and reevaluate their systems, the way of thinking, the way they handle things, for what is putting that person in that situation for where they start to feel like, they do not belong yeah. in the space. Yeah. Because the person so might true. be doing everything right, but the aggressions that they're feeling yeah. might make them be like, well, you know what? And then that person, you know what? Well, maybe I don't belong. Maybe I don't know what I'm doing or mm-hmm. or whatnot. And then it goes to the person starts to second guess themselves and, yeah. you know, yeah. and just, just a whole ongoing spirals. gamut of yeah. things. Yeah. It spirals, yeah. yeah. And imposter syndrome, like the sense of kind of feeling like a fraud, um, yes. like we have to overwork because we're not seen as capable of you know it's a it's an experience that's like you know common for people I think they said like 70 percent of people you know experience like imposter syndrome wow but you know when we talk about it as black women you know yeah. within this kind of historical context it looks right. a little different right because we could have this internal experience of imposter syndrome but we have many experiences or messages that are communicated to us that somehow we're fraud mm-hmm. or that we're not capable mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. and so that tension you know of that dynamic you know is yeah. how it really looks different when we're coming to these conversations yeah it's not up I mean, to us to fix the system yeah exactly yeah. you're right because it's like what you were saying again like earlier Adwa, is, is that in our case our feeling of being imposters is actually true and real because like you were saying, Lenise, you are being made to felt to, to feel like you do not belong. That is deliberate, right? They are deliberately doing things to make you feel like you don't belong. Because I think the problem with that then now it makes me think of, of this, of something is then it almost feels as though, you know, does, does it even matter? <laughs> to, I, there's, I think because I, okay, what I'm trying to say is, all right, dealing with imposter imposter syndrome, right? There's you could look up articles. Oh, here are some strategies for doing that. But in our case, do those strategies? It's like we have to come up with a different set of strategies because our reactions. There's yes, there's like the normal sort of healthy, I think, kind of imposter syndrome to a certain extent. 
But then there's like the imposter syndrome that we we understand as imposter syndrome. We're very able to articulate it because it is in response to something that is very real. And so it's like there's another set of coping strategies to deal with. Maybe it's just like dealing with the micro. Maybe that's what I'm getting at. Is this like there's the coping, the normal coping that you would see in like a normal article that's that you know it's supposed to be for everyone to read. But then there's like a separate set of, of coping strategies. It's like another layer we have to go through where no, this imposter syndrome isn't bullshit. It isn't just my childhood and my father saying this and that. It is literally people actively making me feel that I do not belong through their attitudes and their behaviors and their practices, you know? And I think that's why labeling these things matters so much. You know, when okay. we label strong going black women stereotype, when we okay. talk about you know, racial trauma, racial battle fatigue, which speaks about those, the cumulative um, mm -hmm. physical and psychological effects that we face, you know, weathering racism, you know, yeah. putting names and, and labels to these things to understand, you know, what right. we're experiencing. And I think the greatest piece of advice I got from a mentor when I was going to um, graduate school, she said, your goal is to graduate. She's like, you mm -hmm. cannot be responsible for changing a system. And so, you know, for myself, I went in knowing this, well, no, I, I went in a little more hopeful and I became quickly yeah. unhopeful yeah. Um, early on in the program, but I knew like, I'm here to graduate. I know that I'm not a person that's very vocal and outspoken in that way. Right. And so I was like, the ways I'm gonna resist might look different. You know, someone mm -hmm. else might go into that program and think about ways um, that they wanna push back or change or be more vocal, that's fine too. I think the important thing to recognize is it can't be on the burden of us as black yeah. women, as black people to change a system we didn't create yeah. that still harms us to this day. Um, that cannot be our responsibility. Yeah.